You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. It's Gina. Welcome back to Weird True Crime. I am so excited to get into the second half of the case about Dorothy Jane Scott today. I probably could have covered everything in the last episode, but it would have been well over an hour long. And sometimes it's kind of nice to just break things into easier to digest pieces. So I thought it was a good place to stop it at that point. I hope everyone is doing well. Not a lot has changed since I talked to you last. I do hope my voice is a little better today. Um, We're working on it. I probably need to start drinking some more hot tea with lemon and honey. So I might be making a quick store trip today to stock up on that. So hopefully I'll sound better in, in later episodes. Uh, before I do get into the next part of the case, I want to recap what we've gone over so far. So as we know, Dorothy Jane Scott was abducted from the UC Irvine hospital parking lot on the night of May 28th of 1980. And then the next morning, her car was found in flames in an alley about five miles from the hospital. And Dorothy's parents and the police decided to keep things under wraps so the general public wouldn't get too much information about what was going on while they tried to figure out who set her car on fire and where she might be. But about a week after Dorothy disappeared, her parents began receiving phone calls from a man claiming to have killed her and taken her. And about a week after that, Jacob, Dorothy's father, got tired of sitting around and waiting, so he decided to go to the newspaper to have an article printed up about her disappearance and offering a reward for any information about where she might be. And the day that this article was printed, the newsroom actually got a call from a man claiming to have killed her out of jealousy because she was seeing another man and he was not okay with this. He also knew that she was at the hospital that night with her coworker who had had a spider bite and he had details about the color of scarf she was wearing, which remember she was wearing a black scarf at her meeting and then when she stopped by her parents' house to drop off her son Sean, she had changed into a red scarf and the caller also 
also knew information about the type of jewelry and clothing that she was wearing that night. Police do think that this may have been a hoax caller, but I question that because how would a hoax caller know so much information about what she was wearing and what she was doing that night? Um, unfortunately, there was no other sign of her for four years after this event. No new leads. Nothing else came of it. And if her parents didn't have enough to deal with, the calls from this mysterious man unfortunately continued almost every Wednesday afternoon for four years. And Vera answered the phone every time this caller called, and it was always the same thing. I have your daughter. I killed her. And police even installed a recording device to try to monitor the calls and determine where they were coming from. But unfortunately, for this technology to work, the caller had to remain on the phone for a pretty extended period of time. And the caller probably had an idea that they were being recorded, so they never stayed on the line long enough to be traced. The man's voice was described as gruff and plainly disguised, which if you remember, the person who called the newsroom was described as Southern and possibly Black. But like I said, I don't really know how you can tell that that clearly from someone's voice. So even the descriptions of what these two individuals sound like were very different. There are recordings of the person's voice that are in like police files, but none of this has ever been released to the public, which which makes sense. I feel like that would just open a giant can of worms and you would, people would be pointing to all sorts of people from the past that it could possibly be. So this man that called, he only interacted with Vera. And I don't know if maybe Jacob was at work at the time of the calls. Apparently the calls were usually in the afternoons on Wednesdays, but Jacob never answered these phone calls, and I'm just curious to know if Vera really did actively choose to answer the phone every time, uh, were there maybe circumstances where she didn't answer the phone and the caller just kept calling until somebody did. I would be curious to know kind of more about what that kind of song and dance was was it something she was forced to do otherwise the phone would just keep ringing was it maybe she answered every wednesday hoping that maybe that day the caller could or would give more information about what had happened to dorothy i'm sure it was really tormenting as a mother wanting to not talk to this person who's tormenting you, but also wanting to talk to this person in the hopes that maybe this time they'll give you more information. So actually, in April of 1984, Jacob, Dorothy's father, finally did answer the phone when the man called one evening on a Wednesday, so later in the day. And when Jacob answered the phone, the caller immediately hung up and then the call stopped. So the caller refused to talk to Jacob, so Jacob never got to interact with him in any way. And the caller, like I said, would just say the same thing every time that he had Dorothy or he killed her. 
And the fact that this caller wouldn't talk to Jacob leads me and honestly, probably a lot of others to theorize that this man was somebody that Jacob knew. So maybe the caller was afraid that Jacob would recognize who he was if he talked to him on the phone, kind of just like the cadence of his voice. So maybe there was a reason why the caller never talked to Jacob. But now that I'm thinking about it, even if the police had voice recordings of this person, I'm sure Jacob heard those recordings. So you would think that if he knew who the person was or recognized that voice, that he would be able to identify them through the recordings without actually talking to the person. So maybe it's also a matter of feeling control over others and the caller probably felt like he had more control over a woman in a conversation than a man and that it would maybe be a less confrontational conversation. I don't know, but it's really curious to me that once Jacob did answer the phone that the the call stopped altogether. And like I said, these calls continued for four years until Jacob answered the phone in April of 1984. No new information in the disappearance of Dorothy Jane Scott ever came about in those four years. I I can't imagine her parents agonizing over whether their daughter was alive or dead while having to raise her son while she was gone. Um, it must have been so traumatic and life-altering to be tormented by this caller every week while looking at your grandson and not knowing where your daughter is. I know that Jim said that this whole event just ruined Vera and she was never the same afterwards. And I completely understand why. So the case takes a big turn on August 6th of 1984, which was actually my birthday, but the year before I was born, fun fact, when a foreman of a construction company who was preparing to dig a trench for the Pacific Bell Telephone Company, which you may have heard of, he found the charred remains of a dog off of Santa Ana, Santa Ana Canyon Road. Um, and then upon further investigation, human remains were also found along with the dog bones. I read in a newspaper article that the foreman made a comment that he had actually just been joking with a coworker at the site who was using a backhoe that um, he should watch out for dead bodies. And then he stumbles across a dead body. So I'm sure he wasn't very excited about that irony. I do want to note that these were partial remains and the complete skeleton was not discovered. However, they did find a human skull and dental records did confirm that this was, in fact, Dorothy Jane Scott. A turquoise ring and a small wristwatch were also found near her body, and Dorothy's mother, Vera, confirmed that these were things that Dorothy was wearing the night that she disappeared. Investigators weren't really sure about the connection between the dog and Dorothy or even how long the dog had been there. Um, there are theories out there that say the dog could have belonged to the killer who maybe decided to bury the dog there with Dorothy. I've also seen that maybe it was part of some sort of satanic ritual. Honestly, I think that it could have just been coincidence or maybe um, we'll get into it later, but just land shifting over time with 
with weather and whatnot that maybe these bones just kind of ended up in the same place. There are um, burn marks and char marks on the set of dog bones and on Dorothy's remains, which is because of a brush fire that had actually gone through the area in 1982. So that helped investigators know that the bones had at least been there since 1982 but that they had probably been there longer. Uh, Anthony Sherlock, the crime blogger for blogger1983.blogspot.com, he does not believe that the place Dorothy was found is where she was left. And these remains were found near a hilly area. So like I said, it, it's possible that she was left higher up and rain and erosion caused the bones to kind of move over time. And this could have explained why that there was a dog found with her. So whoever left her there, of course, probably wasn't thinking about just, you know, natural movement of the, the grounds and things around it. And it she wasn't buried. I think she had just been left there with the hopes that, you know, nature would just take its course and probably the animals would kind of help scatter her as morbid as that sounds. Because Dorothy's remains were, were charred due to that brush fire and because of how long the body had been in the woods, it was really impossible to determine what her cause of death was. So unfortunately, there was no information gained there. But in a weird twist, um, Dorothy's mother said in a statement that her watch had stopped at 1230 a.m. on March 29th of 1980, which was just about an hour after she had last been seen alive, which cannot be a coincidence. And my gut reaction to the first time that I read that information was that the killer most definitely stopped her watch when she died. And I'm sure many pe people believe that theory. There's no way that that's just a coincidence. And I don't, it didn't, there was no information about damage or something to the watch that maybe could have made it stop at that time. Um, but uh, like I said, my theory is that whoever took her probably stopped it at that time is, you know, kind of be, to kind of be, clever and rub salt in the wounds when, you know, she eventually was found. Dorothy's parents were relieved to have finally found her, but they weren't granted reprieve for very long because shortly after the discovery of her remains had been known, they started receiving calls again. And the caller asked, is Dorothy home? And just hung up. Meaning, oh, you found her, so she's home now. And then hung up. So just you know, further tormenting them after they finally found their daughter. And I'm not sure how much longer the calls continued after that, but I do believe they did continue for a little while. Unfortunately, Dorothy's parents didn't get any more answers about what happened to, to her. And Jacob died on May 24th of 1994, which was Dorothy's birthday. And Vera died eight years later in 2002. Dorothy's son, Sean, he was raised by Dorothy's parents and he 
he grew up in as good of a circumstance as one can hope, given what he went through in his childhood, but he's still searching for justice for his mother. And he said that what happened to his mom completely destroyed Vera and ruined the rest of her life, that she was never the same after Dorothy disappeared. And unfortunately, there there aren't any suspects currently in the case. There's nobody that they are really looking at or any leads that they have now that they didn't have then to help them close this case. But it is still being actively investigated. And Sergeant Taft is hoping that at some point they can figure out what actually happened to Dorothy. With that said, there are a few suspects that have been considered in this case. Some have been completely ruled out. Some are new theories based on different people's research into the case. So I want to go over those now. So the first suspect, which makes sense because this is kind of where you always go in these kind of circumstances, is Sean's father, Dennis Terry. So of course, police were pretty quick to question Dennis Terry about any sort of connection that he had to Dorothy's disappearance. And because of that argument about the custody of Sean, it's always possible that he got really mad about her reaction to this conversation and his desire to have custody of his son led him to plan on this way to get her out of the way so he could take Sean for himself. But it's it's also noted that there were no there was no screaming or yelling heard when Dorothy was abducted. And you would think that if she had been this is this is theoretically, but it makes sense. And this has been said in a lot of different cases like this. But you would think if she had been attacked by someone she didn't know or if she was scared that she would have fought back or yelled or there would have been some sort of some sort of noise that other people would have heard going on in the area if she was taken by somebody that she didn't know or was scared of. So this could mean that she was familiar with whoever took her. So there is the possibility that it was Dennis and maybe she wouldn't have reacted the same way to seeing him in a parking lot than she would to someone else. But there's no proof that connects Dennis to her disappearance. And he also claimed to be on a two-day bus trip to go back to his home in Missouri when all of this took place. And he was able to provide receipts for his trip. And several witnesses reported seeing him getting on and off the bus, leaving Anaheim, and then returning to Missouri during this time. I also saw it reported that he had called Dorothy's parents' house from his home in Missouri the day of the kidnapping, and that Dorothy's father did say that he talked to him on the phone later that day while Terry was in Missouri to inform him of the kidnapping. So honestly, the likelihood of him being involved is slim to none. I just think that it's bad timing that he and Dorothy got into this really heated argument about custody of Sean a couple days before she disappeared. But I think that's all it is. I think it's just a coincidence and that he's not involved at all in her disappearance. Another suspect is a man by the name of Mike Butler. He was a known acquaintance of Dorothy's. He actually worked in an auto body shop that was across the street from where Dorothy worked. And Anthony Sherlock, 
from the crime blogger website. He also said that Butler was the brother of one of Dorothy's co-workers at the shops that she worked at. Um, I'm not sure if one of these is true and one of these isn't. I mean, both things could be true. But either way, he worked at the auto body shop across the street, and he may have also been related to one of her co-workers. So, Dorothy and Mike were friendly. Um, They got along. He would come see her and they would chat and whatnot, but they never had any sort of romantic involvement. It was known that Mike did have a bit of an infatuation with Dorothy. And when police questioned him after her disappearance, he told them that he wanted to marry her, um, which is quite an interesting statement to make about a missing woman to a police investigator. I feel like that would throw up about a million red flags. Because Mike did work across the street and saw her pretty often, he would have been familiar with her work schedule, and he probably even saw what she was wearing on a normal basis. So that definitely explains how the stalker knew so much about her comings and goings and what she was wearing on any particular day. It was also said that Butler was unstable and involved in occult activity, but I couldn't find any proof of that. Of course, people are saying, oh, well, he was involved in occult activity. So, you know, there's the reason for the dog with her remains. I don't really know if I believe that. Um, Obviously, the police did question him and they must not have found him to be a solid lead because he was never investigated any further at the time. Sergeant Taft, the cold case investigator that's currently on the case, he did express a desire to question him again regarding the case and kind of where he was at the time. But unfortunately, that will never happen because Mike Butler died in 2014. So that's a lead that really can't be followed up on very easily, if at all. I have one more suspect I want to mention, and this is a suspect that Anthony Sherlock talked about in his blog. I really I really got a lot of great information from him. I think his insights are fantastic, and I think this theory holds a lot of weight, and I'm curious to see what he writes about in and later updates on this case to see if he has any other information to share. But his theory is that John Kaikola, who owned and managed the stores where Dorothy worked as a bookkeeper, could be more involved than we know. So remember, John bought the two businesses from Dorothy's father. So he would have known Dorothy's father and they did have at least a business relationship. According to Anthony Sherlock, John Kaikola apparently owned the land where Dorothy's remains were found. So if he did kill her and leave her there, he probably assumed that animals or Mother Nature would take care of the rest and that she would never be found. And he probably didn't think about nature slowly sliding them down this hill closer to the road. He was also one of the few people that knew where Dorothy was going that night because he would have been at that employee meeting, so he knew that she was going to the hospital. Years after Dorothy's death, in 1996, John Kaikola was actually indicted on federal charges related to tax evasion. 
So I'm wondering, could it be possible that Dorothy figured out something was going on when she was working the books as a bookkeeper for his businesses? And when John realized that she knew what he was up to, maybe he plotted this plan to kill her. And Sherlock, Anthony Sherlock, he believes that if John knew that Dorothy was onto him, he's he could have started calling Dorothy and making her believe that she had a stalker who was obsessed with her in a passionate way to kind of just throw her off the trail so she wouldn't have any idea that this could possibly be coming from him. Perhaps the caller, a.k.a. John, wanted everyone to believe it was a crime of passion so badly that this could explain why he could, could why he continued to call for years after the fact to kind of solidify that reasoning for Dorothy's disappearance. So John didn't, if John was involved, it wasn't a crime of passion, but he made it seem like it was to throw off any sort of lead that might make it look like it was him. And this could also explain why these calls suddenly stopped when Dorothy's father answered the phone, because they would have known each other and John didn't want Jacob to hear his voice. I don't know. It's an it's an interesting theory. Um, Anthony Sherlock said that he did have other details that led him to believe that Kaikola could have been more involved, but he wouldn't provide any other information, probably because he's still kind of working through those leads. But I will definitely be keeping an eye out for what he updates with next, because like I said, I feel like it's a pretty strong theory. Um, and I would be interested to see what else he knows. Uh, like I said, the case is still currently being investigated, but there aren't any new leads. Sean, Dorothy's son, who's now grown, he said during his interview with Paul is on to grow up without a mom, to not know what it's like to experience life with a mom. It's not fair. Having two young kids that really broke my heart. I couldn't imagine something happening and my kids having to grow up without me and not knowing what it was like to have a mother there with them. So even in his 40s, he is still grappling with that reality and it's you can just see it in his face how heartbroken he still is after all this time dorothy's brother jim scott he he still keeps a picture of dorothy on his desk and says that he thinks about her every day and you can you can tell that he is still also very impacted by the loss and knowing that the disappearance and murder of your sister is also the reason for why your parents probably didn't live as long as they could have, if not for this horrible heartbreak that they dealt with. I, What do you think? Do you think that any of these suspects make sense? Do you think that there's someone else out there that they really should be looking at more closely? Um, it's such a sad case, and it really breaks my heart that Sean grew up without a mom, and she seemed like she genuinely loved being a mom, and that was her main passion in her life, and it seems like she would have been a great influence on him as he grew up, and it's really sad that he had to grow up without her, and 
I'm hoping that maybe through in more investigation and modern DNA analysis that maybe we might be able to finally find out who killed her. But if I'm being honest, I feel like the chances of that are pretty slim at this point. And that's the story of the disappearance and murder of Dorothy Jane Scott. It really sucked. I know. Please make sure you go follow me on Instagram at Weird True Crime, and I will be posting more pictures and sharing more information about this case. You can also email me your theories or feedback or any other interesting tales at weirdtruecrime at gmail.com. I will also post this case as a blog post to read on the website at weirdtruecrime.com. And please, if you feel so inclined, please rate and review so other people know that I am worth listening to. It would mean so, so much to me. That is the biggest way that you can help this little podcast. I also have a question I want to ask y'all. Do you like this format of one week true crime case and then one week weird headlines. Would you prefer to have a true crime case earlier in the week and headlines towards the end of the week? You tell me what you prefer. I'm ki- I can't decide what makes more sense right now. So you know what? I'll put it out there and ask y'all what you think. And until next week's episode of Weird Headlines, I hope everyone stays safe. Have fun out there and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.